Welcome, welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I am your host, Jeff Z, Jeffrey Salaji. So glad to have you here. Season one is afoot, and we are kicking it off by exploring not just human nature, but particularly the facet of fathers and fathering, the impact and the influence they have on the lives of my guests. Hold tight, stay tuned, and listen in because we are about to journey into a series of conversations. It is incredible. Let's get into it. Let's get started. Here we go. My guest today is the esteemed and acclaimed evolutionary biologist, Dr. Robert Trivers. If you're not familiar with Dr. Robert Trivers, there's a few things I'd like to tell you. First, He wrote a series of influential papers in his late 20s and early 30s. These papers, including Parental Investment and Sexual Selection, written in 1972, redefine the field of evolutionary biology. We will discuss that paper in this show. Robert is also the author of several books, including his autobiography, Wildlife. I recommend you read this book to get a fuller look at the stories behind one of today's most respected evolutionary biologists. What has Dr. Trivers done that fundamentally inspired so many people like Steven Pinker, E.O. Wilson, Richard Dawkins, and also earned him the honor of the Crawford Prize for his analysis of social evolution? He was able to consolidate, advance, and articulate the logic of evolution in ways not previously understood. His groundbreaking papers redefined the field because he was able to explain accurately the economics of things like parental investment, reciprocal altruism, parent-offspring conflict, among others. His ability to find the math in biology and the naked principles of evolution, which allowed him to predict fairly accurately broad swaths of animal and human behavior. Of course, living the math is another thing altogether. To me, it made sense then in this season on Finding Fathers to reach out to Robert, the man who wrote the paper about the subject that so interests me, and to invite him to talk about it. Because it was his insights that gave me the science behind why the Odyssey and Odysseus is the story it is, why he's missing for such a long time, and why the historical Buddha and many other fathers will not necessarily invest in their kids. As I've said before, parental investment is an uncertain yet vital commodity. What could talking with Dr. Trivers about this paper and his own life stories have to teach us? A few important things to know about this particular episode. When Robert zoomed in, he did so from a Jamaican saloon on a Saturday afternoon. There's quite a bit of background noise, as you'll notice, that increases over the time of the interview. You might notice me trying to compensate for this in the pacing and the emphasis in some of my questions. I also want you to know that I've edited the show in a number of ways. Of course, I've taken out the typical ums and stutters and pauses, but I also made a few other important choices. I decided to keep in the beer scene, as it were, to give you a feel of what the experience of our chat was like. But I also decided to trim certain sections that went into fuller detail than needed for our purposes, or because the details were either off point, a bit vulgar, or both. For instance, when Robert talks about the genetics of homosexuality, I omitted the expanded references to particular gene segments, and in the honor-killing conversation, I omitted a truly tragic story that was described so bluntly, I felt it took away from the experience of getting to know the paternal issues in general and Robert's own life in particular. What are the most essential points in this interview? Parental investment, sex differences, female choice, male competition, 
and his own stories as another human being who is subject to all these dimensions of being alive. One of the things that I will say as I've listened to the show, I feel like I missed several opportunities to dive in a little bit deeper, particularly around the area of female choice. I hope that in this podcast, we get to find this theme again in another show or even with another guest. Finally, I believe this show is an important stepping stone because it sets up where we're headed in future seasons on the body and on stress. Parental investment can be thought of as a behavior that depends, one, on how stressed you are, and two, on how well you manage your body budget. That's the language used by Lisa Feldman Barrett in her recent book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. We get hints of this fact when Trivers describes his father as lazy and cheap in the way he parented him in certain moments. Basically, for reasons we can't fully know, apparently his father wouldn't budget the energy to invest in him with the kindness that Robert needed. And so I welcome you to a show with a man who not only sorted out the logic of parental investment, but also is the son of a father who didn't quite invest in him in the way he needed. All right, let's roll, brother. Robert Trivers, welcome to How Humans Work. I'm really glad you joined me today. My pleasure. I want to start by saying that after years and years of being really, really interested in what evolutionary biology has has to teach our generation, the opportunity to talk with you is great. And the reason I wanted to reach out to you was twofold. One, I'm doing this project and the impact of fathers and it would be great if I could talk with Robert Trivers about parental investment. And I want to invite you to tell my listeners today, what is parental investment theory, this paper that you wrote in 1972, and why is it relevant to us as humans today? That paper has got almost 16,000 citations now. Parental investment and sexual selection is one of the two or three most cited papers in all of evolutionary biology because it's the first general theory for the evolution of sex differences in all species. And it's still valid. I mean, the the basic theoretical structure has not been overturned or changed, really. It's still the same. And consequently, when people want to just cite uh, what the framework is they're working in, they cite Trevor 72. Well, let's yeah. open up that paper a little bit and talk a little bit more. What are the core ideas in parental investment theory? What it, It's still valid. What are the core ideas in there that you were able to write almost 50 years ago? The core ideas are that father and mother are equally related to their offspring in general. You can find exceptions where it's not true. But in general, father and mother are equally related, i.e. by a half, to their offspring. And furthermore, they are favored, according to Fisher's 1930 sex ratio theory, to produce them in equal numbers. Because if they're an excess of males, then each female does relatively better. If there's an excess in females, each male does relatively better. Relatively better means if there's three females for every one male, he gets three females as mates and she only gets one. Now you combine Fisher's sex ratio theory with relative parental investment, which is simply who invests more 
in the offspring, where investment is defined as work you do that uh, is subtracted from work you can invest in other offspring. Once you start with that, then in the vast majority of species, there is no male parental investment. All we do is, am I allowed to use vulgar language? Be yourself, Robert, be yourself. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I never use vulgar language, so let's stop that. All he's got to do is fuck her, and that's, you know, that's a, a third of a day's ejaculate. That don't cost him nothing. By contrast, the female has to, at the very least, lay eggs, and eggs are costly. So she's limited by the number of eggs she can produce. For example, in the classic work, she was limited between 15 and 50 offspring she could produce, okay? However, a male in such a species, he can, he can inseminate dozens of females. If you inseminate dozens of females, you are subtracting dozens from me, right? So that leads to male-male competition. Right. You've got uh, female investment and male competition. Now then, what does male competition consist of? Two items. One is male-male conflict. I chase you away from a set of female deer using my antlers to force you away. They don't use the antlers to uh, stab another deer. They lock the antlers together, and then which of us is stronger pushes the other one the hell out of there, okay? So that's male-male competition. However, there's also female choice, and we know that that's important in the same deer. We know that females often live in groups. They will move away from a male that they don't like so that they're available for other males. Now, what's the logic of female choice? You want to choose a male whose genes are going to be good for your offspring. So they're going to promote survival, and they're going to promote competition with other males. And those are the two factors. Now, it wasn't until I came along that people separated the things out carefully, because I actually defined parental investment. Fisher had called it parental care, but he didn't define it, and he didn't define it well. I define it exactly. Parental investment is investment in current offspring that subtracts from investment in additional offspring. Now, I deliberately use the word investment precisely because it is a word that's used in human life, especially in economics, if you want theory, you know. How much are you investing in the stock market this week? Well, I'm investing uh, 10000 So that's money that's going one place, being subtracted from going another place. So I like the concept of parental investment. I also, uh, let me see now before I get hopelessly confused here. Well, females can choose males uh, on the basis of two criteria. 
do they invest more? So in some species where, female, where males do invest, female choice does indeed magnify male investment. That is, females want more investment because that's something males do. You can choose a male because he's going to invest something. And yes, that would, that would tend to be pair bonding species. Or you can choose a male because he's genetically superior to the other alternatives. Now, that was a key one. That was often overlooked, even though Fisher was aware of it. Now then, I realized that female choice for genes is going to be intrinsically biased towards daughters. Unfortunately, I fucked up and I let a graduate student who did the math I then, I was in a strange space in life where I was trying to help those that needed help. So I let him be senior author and then that's bad enough, but then I let him control the writing of it. So my title was Female Choice Aids Daughters. That would have been published in Nature, which is where our paper was published. It would be cited 5,000 times now or more. It's cited something like 45 times. Uh, now my book, Social Evolution, came out a year before our paper in Nature. And in the chapter on female choice, there is a subsection called Female Choice Favors Daughters. My book is now cited 3,500 times, which is unusual. Books, especially textbooks or, or books that summarize a field, are rarely cited that often. But anyway, female choice favors daughters. Why is that so, Robert? Good question. All right, let's imagine two situations. We've got a female who chooses a male who increases the survival of her daughters by 30% and has zero effect on her sons. All right, that means one generation later, there's going to be 30% more females choosing like their mother. And that means that they're wise to choose males that were the offspring of a similar choice because they'll have more female biased genes in them. Can you break that down to like a family story? I'm hearing it almost as if women who choose a man who invests in the family or their daughters will protect them more. They'll have more viability, which means they're more likely to make that choice in the future. Am I hearing that right? Well, I can't tell from your example whether there's also uh, parental investment there, paternal investment. So try to leave out paternal investment entirely from your argument. It's a female choice between two males, one of whom produces daughters that survive better, the other one produces sons that survive better. All right. Now, the one where the sons survive better does not increase the frequency of those choosing. However, if you're the other case, if you're improving your daughter's survival, it increases in one generation in the sex that's doing the choosing. The key is 
you know, which sex does your choice improve genetically? If it improves females genetically, females choose again right away. So it reinforces, it's self-reinforcing. Whereas if you improve your son's survival, you have to wait one year, I mean one generation, for grandchildren to increase, female grandchildren. So now you get an increase in the power of female choice. Um, one of the things I wanted to have a conversation with you about is your father. If I have his name right, I believe it is Howard Trivers. How did your dad invest in you? Um, what kind of father was he? What was he like to you? What are some of your memories? He was a strong parental investor. God bless him. He raised seven children with my mother. However, as a father, I found him harsh and especially towards me. He had seven children. Uh, the first three were boys and I was the second. And then he had three girls. Uh, the third uh, was the brightest and even born on his birthday. So I only learned later that he was especially aggressive towards children of his that he thought was as smart as him or smarter. Mm -hmm. And my mother said once that your father thought you were smarter and she added, and of course you were, right? <laughs> God bless my mother. So I'll give you an example. I'd love that. I played the violin, was part of the orchestra there at Leland Junior High. Every year they had the Maryland State Orchestra Contest. So we would drive to the University of Maryland. So I go, do my job, come back. Three days later, I open my violin case to practice because they insisted I practice in the evening, you know, for half an hour. The fucking violin case was empty. I said, oh my God, this is gonna be an unpleasant night. And then I studied it more carefully, Jeffrey, and it was obvious it wasn't even my violin case. Yes. <laughs> so now I knew I'm going to be roasted in oil, and I'll show you how it went. What he would do is humiliate me in front of the whole family. So he would have the empty case, and he would say, God damn you, Ludlow. That was my middle name. God damn you, Ludlow. You bring home a full case if you're gonna bring home the wrong one. They weigh different, you know? So his arm is going up and down because this thing don't weigh nothing. So I'm humiliated. It was not fun, brother. You know, everybody, yeah. I, to this day, I wanna ask him, were you guys laughing or crying? You know, I know I hated it. Next day, first of all, we called Maryland, and yes, they had an extra violin. <laughs> and case. So we drove there, made the switch, came back, problem over with. It's because he was so fucking cheap. 
you at least bring home a violin case with a violin in it. So what was the second example I want to give you? Oh, I don't have memory for trivia. What do you mean you don't have memory for trivia? You have so many uh, facts and stories about animals and species. Well, that amuses me because I don't think that's trivia. Hold on a second, I'm gonna beg another beer. Shanae? Can I get one of these? Oh, oh, there you are. Sorry. So anyway, you, I mean, the color of your shirt right now is trivia. Right, trivia. Now, sure. you know, I'll, I'll, I'll remember it the rest of my life, vivid red. But, you know, whatever you're wearing, stuff like that, no memory, didn't go into my brain at all. Yeah. Precisely because my brain is focused on intellectual trivia, mm-hmm. you know, intellectual mm-hmm. stuff. So we used to have the following scene. He would say, Ludlow, go on up and get my evening jacket. That's the one he wears in the evening. It even had a leather patch, so it, there were ways to recognize it. But I had no idea what it looked like. I don't, I don't look and see what he's wearing at night, for Christ's sake. That's trivia. So I go upstairs, and he was a diplomat. So I open the closet, and there's 200 suits. Now, <laughs> what is the chance that I'm going to pick out the right one? Zero, 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 four, something like that. So I pick out one, and I come down with it. And then we go through the same thing. God damn it, Ludlow. I told you to bring me the one I wear every night. Now, I keep thinking, you know, if if he was a decent father, he could have taken me by the hand and said, Robert, uh, let me show you the jacket that I'm talking about. Led me upstairs, pointed to it and said, that's the one. I would never have forgotten it from that moment. Right? Absolutely. But that's not the way he did it. Because he was fucking lazy. You think he was lazy? You think that's what be, was behind his tyrant kind of behavior towards you? Um, I guess he was lazy in terms of investing in you. Uh, also, as my mother pointed out, hey, thanks, brother. You want to come, sir? Here, you can take this. He just had a mental sickness where he was jealous of the children that were brightest. Now, you would think it would be easy to do it the other way around and say, well, Jeffrey wears strange colored shirts, but he's bright as fuck. You know what I mean? (laughs) And so let's invest a little bit more in him. Amen to that. Let's do that. Let's do that. I was the smartest of the boys. Mm-hmm. And as I said, my mother feared that I was smarter than him. And she said, which of course you were. Now, I was very, very close to my mother. Very. 
Now the second one was Mildred, which was the third of his daughters. So that was three sons, three daughters, and then one final son, all right? Not only did he dislike her or hard on her because she was the smartest, but also she had her birthday on his birthday. Now you can imagine, Jeffrey, that you would say, hey, Ludlow here is born the same day I am. Lud, you know what I mean? Yeah. Not him. No. That's, that's, that's uh, carving into his face. It, it was a combination of uh, laziness and jealousy. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds painful, Robert. It sounds like that was uh, not easy to be Howard's son. Oh, it was painful, brother, especially being humiliated in front of the, the whole family. And I hated it. I want to ask you a couple follow-up questions to the stories you shared, which I really appreciate you, you opening up about this. One is, did your father ever have a moment where he was not humiliating you, where he found you, where he saw you, where he appreciated your nature in a way that you felt loved? Uh, sure. He was also a loving father to all of us. So I'll give you an example. In Denmark, because he was a diplomat, he went to work for the State Department as an expert on Nazism. He helped write the denazification procedures, and as a reward, he was given a posting to Denmark. Nothing going on in Denmark. This was 50 to 52. So we used to go out bicycling, the three boys and dad. Now, I remember once we're bicycling up a hill, and one of us farts, and my father says, no fair jet propulsion. <laughs> and we all laughed, at which point the guy farts about four more times. <laughs> you know, no right. fair jet propulsion. So he could be a loving, he could be a loving father. So uh, I have another follow-up question for you. When I read your autobiography, one of the things that stood out to me was that you defended people who were dominated. A lot of your fights, a lot of your arguments in Jamaica, a lot of your uh, battles in academia were defending people who were being abused or dominated by other people. Yes, I agree. So, And I'll tell you something this, Jeffrey. The only shame I feel, and shame is a, is a stronger emotion than guilt. If I fucked you up and let's say forget to send you the chapter two, which is minor, but let's say I do something worse, then I'll feel guilty about it. And I'll say, you know, you, you treated Jeffrey wrong. So you owe an apology. And I have no problem apologizing to someone that I feel deserves one. You know, I'll call you or write you and I'll say, Jeffrey, I, I feel that I, uh, you know, you know, owe you an apology for the way I acted. So I hope you'll accept it. Something like that. Shame, however, to me is a much more powerful emotion. Guilt says I mistreated you. Shame says I mistreated myself. Or, or it's closer to home, you know? Now, the only shame I feel is, and they're vivid, 
cases, especially with women, almost all with women, where I should have intervened to protect them and I didn't, either because I was really frightened in one case and didn't feel I had any backup or I can give you, you know, two or three other examples. But the shame was, you know, it wasn't guilt that I didn't intervene. It was shame because it was, it was fear uh, that was keeping me from intervening. There are times where you did stand up and defend people. There was a I woman. I intervened in a lot of arguments. You got in a lot of fights. Yeah, I did. Well, I was a boxer at Andover, and I was a good boxer. I was on the boxing team. And then when I came to Jamaica, uh, I didn't feel that I was under threat or danger. Following up on the father, the other question I have for you is, who became your proxy fathers? Who gave you that quality of male presence, that, that loving benevolence? Well, yes, I would say, but it wasn't until Harvard and indeed maybe after Harvard, the first year after Harvard, when I learned biology, and he became a father figure to me. And he wasn't that kind of person at all. You know, he was a much gentler and lovely person. Bill Drury, there's a whole chapter on Bill. I told you a story in there, which I always loved him for, where we're both watching herring gulls on a lake. It's virtually impossible to tell a male from a female. He can, but everybody else, even ornithologists, have to capture them and then feel them inside, you know. But anyway, we're both watching the gulls, and I say something really stupid about the interpreting their behavior in terms of natural selection. And maybe you remember his line, never assume the animal you are studying is as stupid as the one studying it. <laughs> you know, we're side by side with binoculars. I look over here and I say, I like this guy, you know? Yeah. He was a father figure then, by then, but, you know, by then, I'm mature, mm -hmm. semi-mature. <laughs> what do you think the impact of your father's investment in you, like, what are some... I'm going to have to speak closer here and louder. Okay, so what are some of the impacts your father's way of, of being a dad, what are the impacts in your life that you feel your dad made um, for my you? My father? Yeah. I don't know. I know I didn't want to talk to him the last eight years of my life. And then he was ready to die. He had one heart attack, 77. He had a second one. And they told me, go visit him. But I was four. And I still could have borrowed the money. But then they called and said, no, they say he's going to live for another month. So I said, okay, I'm going to Jamaica for a week. I'll fly straight back to see him. Six days after I got there, I visited my brother-in-law's place, and he just got a phone message that my father's dead. So I flew back. I escorted my mother down the, the aisle in the church even though my older brother was there, who was a Coast Guard officer, uh, but I was her favorite. But um, 
It was an unhappy, uh, for me, it was unhappy, you know. It was unhappy. Yeah. In your own life as a father, you have four of your own children. What kind of father were you able to be um, given your own father's experience? How did, how did it go for you? No, wait a second. You said I have four grandchildren? No, just four children, right? You have four children? No, I have a fifth by another woman. So two of those are boys and three of those are girls. How has your own fathering been? How, how do you feel like you've been able to father? How's your paternal investment? How do I act as a father? Yeah. How do you act as a father? Well, I think, I think certainly gentler and, and more understanding than him and tend to invest in them, you know? So I, I, I invest in them. I'm talking about money on a regular basis. One son is just 22 and he's in the U.S. Army, but he'll soon be out. I told him when, I, when he went in there, because I thought it was a very wise decision on his part. He had just graduated from college. He was brilliant and lazy to match. My joke about him, and he was, but the marriage broke up quick so he didn't grow up with a father that would encourage the mathematical side of him. He grew up barely able to pass high school. We all had to lift him over the finish line. So then what's he going to do? He can work for UPS and he started and quit after three days. And then there was some Jamaican woman just in Florida who's going around trying to get people to join the army. She's in the army. So he, he follows suit and joins the army. So I told him, well, son, if you were in college, I would be paying you 20,000 a year. So since you're in the army, I'm gonna pay you roughly the same amount. So I have, I've, uh, twice I've sent him 20,000 and I owe him one more 20. Now then, my first son, he's bipolar like me, only he's got it worse. It may be because he started smoking uh, herb uh, way before it's wise to do so. He's, he's receives disability, but I supplement. So he gets disability from me, $800 a month, and from the U.S. government, about the same amount. So I have good relations with him, I think. You, you know, one of the things I've uh, been curious about as evolutionary biology becomes uh, more well understood, it's written about all the time and publications like Psychology Today, humans are this way because of that or that way because of this. What's the biggest mistake in how we understand our evolution? What's the biggest logical uh, mistake as evolutionary biology and psychology get more popular? The biggest mistake used to be the group selection mistake. So you're pretending like you're arguing from natural selection, but no, you're arguing from group selection. That's bullshit. 
you cannot get anywhere with that. Now, assuming you're talking about natural selection, well, it's hard for me to tell you what the biggest mistake is. There's nothing that makes you feel like evolutionary biology is being misunderstood or misused? Well, not really. I mean, I get pissed off when people say that I argue that differential mortality by sex is caused by the Y chromosome when I specifically in 72 got rid of that. When you think about society, whether that's American society or Jamaican society, and you think about parental investment, in particular father's paternal investment, from everything you've learned through evolution, what do you think it is that humans most need to know? Well, I would go back to basics, you know. In other words, it's still, parental investment is still very important. And maternal investment versus paternal investment. Basically, Jeffrey, if you're interested in theory, you have a special interest in, in phenomena that seem to contradict uh, evolutionary logic at its core. Because if you can't explain that, you've got a problem. So 40 years ago, I developed an interest in male homosexuality precisely for that reason. Because how do you explain the fact that 3% of men, roughly, are male homosexual, you know? And when I was growing up, they were more apt to be bisexual because they're hiding the homosexuality, you know? Now, ever since it was freed up, you know, San Francisco and New York and God knows where all, uh, we're free. So I paid attention to the literature on it. I'm, I'm very up to date on that. I still am. So we're pretty sure there is a genetic component to male homosexuality and that it makes sense if you assume that uh, homosexuality is sex antagonistic. You know, good for one sex, not good for the other one. All right, fine. So I still keep up with the literature, you know. For example, the more older brothers you have, the more likely you are to be gay. And that's everywhere. Uh, and that we, we, me and another guy, think we have an explanation for. Uh, but in any case, now let's skip that. For the last two or three years, I've been working on something that's similarly seems to contradict evolutionary logic per se. And this is honor killing. Have you heard of honor killings? Yes, I have. It's, it's Muslim and Hindu. Let's forget Hindu. That's based on caste. Muslim is based on the fact that they believe in first cousin marriages and the first cousin has to be father's brother's child, okay? Now, how do you explain that kind of behavior? Is there an evolutionary basis for explaining that or is that pure human culture? 
No, it's evolutionary logic, brother. I was getting to it. If you practice first cousin marriages repeatedly, you drive degrees of relatedness up because your degree of relatedness to your offspring is a half and with an outbreeding, but within breeding, first cousin marriage, it, it rises from eight sixteenths to nine sixteenths. It goes up one sixteenth because of the inbreeding. And that gets repeated every fucking generation. So you can jack the thing up to uh, almost one. So you're related to your child by let's say 0.95. So now you're related to your nephews and nieces by let's say 9.1. You know, your collateral relatives are now relatively more valuable to you than in a system where there's no cousin marriages. So you can work out an evolutionary logic here that don't talk about sociology. Let me ask you this question another way. Why would a father or an uncle deny female choice? Because they're, they're highly related to the individuals involved and they're in a culture where they will be looked down on if they don't if they don't marry a first cousin, if you want to bother looking at my logical talk that explains this. In fact, I'm going to send you the link. It relates to fathers and daughters. Right. And since you're writing uh, or rather producing a podcast on fathers, let me send it to you. And the 400,000 U.S. that you're going to send me, um, <laughs> I'll give you my Chase bank account number. Yeah, tell me. Yeah, give me your Social Security number. Give me your PIN number while you're at it. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Chase, it's a delight talking to you, brother. It's been great talking with you, Robert. I hope we get to do it again. God bless you and keep you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please follow us on your favorite streaming platform and share our podcast with your community and friends. All music is composed by the incredible Chase Jackson at chasejacksonmusic.com. To learn more about this show, our guest, as well as Jeffrey and his work helping people find peace with their human nature, go to howhumanswork.us.com.